who you are defines how you build. This is the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you by Stanford eCorner. Hello, everyone. My name is Emily Ma, and I'd love to welcome you to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series today, presented by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program, which is the Entrepreneurship Center in Stanford School of Engineering, and then BASIS, the Business Association of Stanford Entrepreneurial Students. I am so excited to have Alex Wang at UTL today. It's also his birthday uh, secretly, and so he chose to spend his birthday with you, which is the coolest thing ever. Uh, Alex is the founder and CEO of Scale AI. He founded Scale AI at the age of 19 while he was studying at MIT. His central insight was that machine learning powered data labeling could really help human beings make better use of AI over time. Under Alex's leadership, Scale has grown to a $7 billion valuation and serves hundreds of customers across so many industries, from finance to e-commerce to US government agencies. Welcome, Alex. Let's start off with what Scale AI does. I mean, you've built this incredible company in three years. Tell us more about the breadth of work that you do. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for having me, Emily. Uh, really excited to chat today, and and uh, I really enjoy chatting with you. Um, uh, so I'm excited. Um, so yeah, scale. So our mission is to accelerate the development of AI applications. You know, we believe that AI and machine learning is, uh, you know, if not the most important technology of today, one of the most important technologies that's going to enable huge amount of goodness for for the world and, and just enable the world to operate significantly more efficiently and effectively and enable new customer experiences. Um, and uh, our, our vision in accomplishing that is building the most data-centric uh, infrastructure platform for, for AI and machine learning. And the, the real insight that, um, that we have or the thing that powers everything that we do is this thought that you know, uh, data is the new code um, and that, that the thing that will dictate the performance of these machine learning systems and these AI systems of the future is actually the data sets and the data that they're trained on much more so than the code um, that is written to power them. And so, you know, if we were to boil it down to a two sentence, it's that better data results in better AI. And we've taken that sort of core idea and uh, use that to build out an infrastructure platform to power uh, a large number of uh, a large swath of the sort of like AI ecosystem or the, the sort of like AI use cases out there. So we originally started with data labeling or data annotation, which is the problem of converting sort of raw data feeds to useful label tag data that can be actually used to, to train um, large scale machine learning systems. Um, we actually started in autonomous vehicles. And then since then, we've scaled across a variety of different industries, like you mentioned, from e-commerce to financial services, to the government, to work with large tech platforms and sort of everything in between. Uh, and what we do with these customers is we help them not only with data annotation, data labeling, we help them with data management, we help them uh, build out actually algorithms. And so with some customers, we provide algorithms directly to them uh, for stuff like document automation or e-commerce AI or, uh, or in the government use cases. And so we've been able to expand pretty rapidly into a huge number of uh, product areas, into a huge number of verticals. But again, centrally at the core, it's all been powered by this concept that better data results in better AI. And the, the most valuable thing that we can do to ensure that uh, we have great AI systems of the future is to build incredible systems to be, build great data sets. So that's what we do. God, that's amazing. Uh, and, and the fact that you came across the seedling of that insight when 
you were 19, you weren't even 20. And uh, it, I, I'm actually curious if we just go back now, knowing what, you know, Scale AI has grown to. Um, when you were 19, what gave you confidence in this concept that data is a new code, that, you know, this, that was the basis, that was the soil for, you know, the growth of, you know, beautiful AI algorithms in the future. Um, and what gave you the courage to jump in and do this? Yeah. So, so it's sort of a few things. So, uh, when I was actually, I was at, um, I was at MIT, I was studying AI and machine learning, and this was, this was the year when, um, Google released TensorFlow, uh, and, uh, and DeepMind released AlphaGo. So it was sort of this like big seminal moment, um, for AI and machine learning. And it really felt, you know, it was this, you know, I actually remember there's like this reporter who, who was walking around, um, MIT campus and was like interviewing. MIT students to see what they thought about about AlphaGo, and so it was like it was this very clear moment where it like felt like AI, hey AI is actually um, is going to happen, it's going to be big. And then I remember um, both in in some in some projects as well as like um, in some school projects as well as some side projects. Um, uh, I and one of these side projects I remember very viscerally was like I want to build a camera inside my um, inside my uh, inside my fridge that would tell me when my roommates were going to, were stealing my food, and um, I remember very viscerally, it's like, hey, you know, there's all these great neural networks. They're really, really cool. But at, at the end of the day, the algorithm is only as good as the data that it's trained on. And so it, it was like, hey, this is a this is going to be a critical almost pillar of of whatever AI looks like in the future. And um, and and I looked around and I realized like, hey, this is a big problem that that there aren't actually that many people trying to solve or there, there aren't that many people focused on solving this problem. And, and ultimately the thing that gave me conviction was, was frankly the, I'd seen sort of the success stories in, in sort of the years prior of, of platforms like AWS, which enabled everybody to build these large scale um, internet systems or, or, or sort of like websites and, and, and um, large scale internet platforms. Um, I'd seen the success of platforms like Stripe uh, for to enable payments and enable sort of like you to build businesses on the internet. And so uh, ultimately the realization was kind of, hey, you know, what AWS has done for the cloud or what Stripe has done for payments, you know, there's an opportunity for a company to do that for AI and unlock this huge amount of potential for the technology by solving one of these critical pillars. And the pattern recognition was that, hey, data centric AI was, was going to be just as important as, as some of these other sort of like foundational pillars. Um, and so that's, that's really what, what kind of got me excited at the time. And, and I, you know, honestly speaking, I didn't have all the answers. Um, I didn't know necessarily that, that this idea was, was definitely going to be, um, uh, as important as I think we believe it is now, or, or I didn't necessarily know that it was going to be, um, as, uh, as exciting as, as we think it is now, but, but the, the sort of fundamentals were there for it to be like, Hey, this is certainly worth exploration. I have a very important question for you. Did your roommate stop stealing your food? Well, the the punchline is actually I couldn't build it because just building that would have required so much data about, you know, different foods and like different configurations and what it looked like to pull food away from the from the fridge. It was just like the, literally the amount of data would have been astronomical that like oh. it took me all of 2 hours to just give up on that idea and realize oh. there's no way. Dang it. And building on this question, though, there's more seriously other than stealing food. I hope they didn't they stop stealing your food regardless. Um, you actually had some other entrepreneurial uh, uh, sort of experiences. You had some other things that you were building with classmates and 
Um, you know, I'm curious if that sort of helped you feel out what the entrepreneurial journey was like. Yeah, I think that there's like, um, you know, I often tell, I tell everyone this, which is that I think this sort of like this creation process of having an idea in your mind and then working with people to like realize that idea into, into the world. Um, it's an incredibly empowering process. It doesn't always work. Obviously it's not always the case that like, you know, build something and, it, and it's amazing, but I think it's like, it gives you so much confidence to like go from literally an idea that you're dreaming up and you, um, you're, you're sort of like working on an ice, you, you know, you're, you're literally dreaming it up to go through this sort of like process of making that a reality and identifying what are all the components we need to build? How do we need to architect it? How do we build that? Um, and actually build it into, into a reality. Cause it gives you so much, it gives you so much power as an individual. It's like, wow, I can, I have this ability to like will things that from my, from my mind into, into my, um, in, into reality. And I think that, um, and I think that's, 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 you know, that's like one of the most valuable things um, that, that you can, you can gift to anyone. Right. And we, we actually, we have a value um, like this at scale, we call it ambition shapes reality. And uh, maybe one day I'll sort of publish um, uh, like how we think about this internally. But, but the core idea is that like, you know, um, there's this incredible quality where if you, you know, doing something that's ambitious versus not ambitious, you know, they might take literally the same amount of work. And so if you, uh, mm -hmm. if you, if you, if you are able to like dream up big ideas and dream up big solutions to problems, and then you work to build them, you can have just like this incredible sort of like, uh, feedback loop with the world and building great things and continuing to, to sort of like, um, expand your horizons. Oh, I love it so much. I think there's two things that I took away from what you just said. It's, um, you know, I think a lot of times, you know, as, as especially as students, right, it's like, hey, you know what, I don't have the skills to build that yet. But like, sometimes it's really powerful to just get going and to realize that you can manifest, right? You can code, you can build an app, even if it's not perfect, right? You can manifest from an idea in your head into something, right? And just that prototype is like very empowering. It shows that we have that agency to manifest and manifest and manifest. And then the second thing that you mentioned actually made me sort of think about like my own journey in food. It's like, wow, you know what, if I aim for like, hundred percent better. I'm only going to get maybe, you know, 80% there. Lucky maybe I get hundred percent. But if I aim for like a thousand percent better, I might get 500%, right? So if we aim further with our ambition, we actually get further. If we set our, you know, finish line too close, it's too easy. We actually shortchange ourselves in many ways. So um, I hope you write that book. I really do hope you write that book because it's a powerful message. It's, it's um, so true. There's, um, we've, there's all these examples. I collect examples of this in, in, in the, in real life. And, uh, and one of the best ones is that like, you know, the four minute mile, um, for the longest time, um, humans thought that the four minute mile would have been impossible. And then somebody broke it. And then all of a sudden, all these people broke the four minute mile. And it was just this incredible moment of human achievement. So same thing with high jumps, right? You know, like forever people were like going over like front first and then some dude was like, no, I'm going to go over backwards. And then they had this step change and just the amount of height you could get uh, by high jumping. So uh, love it, love it. You know, I want to get to the crux of what um, your insight was and talk a little bit about data because oftentimes I think, you know, in the world, everybody rushes to AI and then they forget actually the foundational element is the data as you noticed. And you've done such an incredible job making that more accessible to everyone. So, you know, one of the, a couple of things are sort of top of mind for me in terms of challenges in the data space. So the first one um, is, is a question of data sparseness. So, um, you know, 
some industries you know that have been digitized over the last 10 20 years you know lots of data flowing through right you know financial industry lots of sort of digitization there but like there's other industries you know like food and ag you know I'd like hell if I know how many farmers out there are willing to spend time putting sensors in their fields to gather data. So, you know, what are your thoughts in sort of making sure that we bring along the industries that may not be as digitized? You know, how do we capture, help those industries capture more data or maybe find ways to use less data in order to um, is sort of, uh, build algorithms or other ways that you've thought of? Yeah, totally. Yeah, and I think this is actually one of the fundamental, fundamental um, uh, problems that we hope to solve, and I, I know like even without scale is going to be solved over the course of the next, uh, let's call it decade, because fundamentally, you're exactly right. Like this, the um, the way I think about this is that there's, there's sort of like these two waves um, of technology that are sort of like crashing through the world, so to speak. The first wave is sort of um, the internet and more and more computing and more and more sensors. And uh, that's great because if you have more sensors and you have more, it, the internet is more uh, distributed, you have better coordination, data gets saved more easily, um, you have automated workflows, like the soft, software is amazing for, for a bunch of reasons. And then like this interesting side effect is that as that's happening, um, you, all these pools of digital data get collected in, in all these interesting industries um, in all these interesting uh, areas and verticals. And then those pools of digital data are actually what creates the opportunity for um, machine learning systems or AI systems to then have huge amounts of impact. And the, sort of the second wave is is AI and machine learning that's going to that's going to build off the shoulders of the giants of like all this technology and sensors that have been deployed in the past. But then but then you you enter a problem which is that like um, so if you think about uh, the the sort of uh, quote unquote old use cases of AI like large scale ad systems or uh, search or ranking for social media um, you have th those those use cases are very special because they have what are called natural labels. You know, just by us clicking on things on Google or just by us clicking on a video in our YouTube feed or clicking on something in our Facebook feed, we're providing labels about what are the things that that interest us, what are the things that that um, that uh, we're going to read or spend time on or look at. And, um, and the reality is in almost every other industry, in every other part of the economy, you don't have that. You don't have these like natural labels that are just automatically feeding into these machine learning systems, but you have lots and lots of data. And so most industries and most companies, whether that be in the healthcare space or in financial services or ag, um, agriculture, like you had mentioned, agriculture and food, or in, uh, in sort of climate, you know, there's huge amounts of data. These companies actually have lots and lots of data, but it isn't um, what we like to say is it isn't AI ready. It's not, it's not annotated. It's not cleaned. It's not ready for the process of machine learning. And so that's sort of, you know, in many ways, it's like step one of, of, of what we've built at scale is like, how do we enable every business to, um, to go from huge pools of unstructured data to, uh, towards, uh, well-labeled, uh, biased great high quality data sets that are gonna allow them to build um, great machine learning systems of the future. And I think that like, you know, realistically speaking, there's, that's going to take some time and that's going to, there's lots of industries, but, but um, that's like this, this sort of like, that's almost as like critical step of this critical bottleneck for AI to be deployed in significantly more areas. And the, the example I'll pose here, or the, the example we talk about a lot internally is um, if you think about ImageNet, which was sort of uh, the first really large scale, like data set, computer vision data set um, that, uh, 
that Fei-Fei Lee's lab at Stanford helped create, you know, that was the thing that then led to AlexNet and, and convolutional neural networks and, and all these deep learning approaches, us realizing that they actually were, could be really effective and they could absorb all this data. And so um, there's this really interesting thing about how data um, will, will lead to, just having data alone is going to lead to really incredible machine learning and great techniques being used. And, and that's sort of one of the things that we get really excited about. The other thing that I'll mention is there are plenty of use cases as well where um, maybe it's difficult to collect data, um, whether that be for privacy reasons or that's for lack of sensors um, or, or whatever reason. And, um, and these use cases do exist and sometimes they're incredibly important. And that's where sort of approaches around synthetic data or data augmentation become really important, which is how do you take um, what, what little data that you have and, and really supercharge that to be able to make it really, really valuable for building machine learning systems. Um, and that's really something that we're, we're very passionate about at scale as well, is like, how do we use synthetic data, data augmentation to enable machine learning teams to combine the benefits of real world data with diverse and realistic synthetic data to ultimately achieve sort of um, really great machine learning algorithms. So um, it's kind of a mouthful, but, but uh, data, 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 lots of exciting stuff. Yes, incredible. Um, for some of the students who may not necessarily be CS majors here, I do want to talk about what quality data means and what data annotation means. And it's so fascinating to me. Last week, we had a speaker come in and talk about um, data in agriculture and how um, before artificial intelligence, there must be human intelligence. So HI before AI, and she's really built her company at Grow Intelligence by hiring incredible experts who can interpret the data and, and really connect the dots appropriately. So, you know, with your work, um, uh, <laughs> maybe I could also point out a personal example that I'm fascinated by. Um, do a lot of work annotating food data and the chefs can tell the difference between a cilantro stem and a parsley stem. And I'm like, I, I have no idea. They look exactly the same to me. Um, how do you work with your taskers and how do you train them to annotate huge amounts of data in partnership with your customers, because they're not necessarily experts in transportation or experts in, you know, um, like melanomas on skin. Like, how do you then sort of help them train up so that they can do the work to ground truth? Yeah, yeah. And so a few things, few things here. You know, one of the one of the fundamental um, beliefs that that we have at scale is that, um, you know, there's sort of like there's sort of like a few resources that go into producing really high quality machine learning systems. If you think about like, what are the raw ingredients? One of those raw ingredients is compute. Um, one of those raw ingredients is data. And then the last raw ingredient is sort of like human insight, so to speak, or like, um, and, and sort of the process of producing annotated data is combining raw data and human insight together um, and sort of, you know, mixing those ingredients together. Uh, and, and, you know, um, all AI systems of the future are going to be heavily reliant on human insight, even if you know we we have incredible advancements in the technology, et cetera. Because at the end of the day, you know we're at minimum we're going to need oversight in these AI systems to make sure that they're they're built, they're producing the results that we would expect and producing the results that we think are are uh, make sense and, and and whatnot. And so, I think we think this like problem, this sort of like crit, one of the core problems of machine learning is like how do you make sure that for every problem that um, 
that you might ha- that you might want to solve a machine using machine learning. You might want to have a machine learning system do that. You're able to effectively get human insight to sort of like power that um, power that use case. And the way we think about it is like is is twofold. I think first is um, for folks who are trained up, you want those individuals to have as much leverage as possible. So you want um, and this is somewhat circular, but it, it becomes very important. You want machine learning systems to do as much of the work as possible and then really have humans spend all of their effort on uh, on almost quote unquote the edges or on the really like high judgment work that's required that enables the utmost quality um, while while making them the most efficient in their roles. So that's the first piece. And the second piece is sort of this this general education problem around how do you how do you enable people to be experts and how do you like train them most efficiently and one of the almost funny side effects of of solving this problem at scale is that i think we we have one of the probably the more interesting edtech systems out there in which we have systems internally which track all the different kinds of you know edge cases might be one way to talk about but all the different kinds of nuances to some of these um, these data problems, right? Like how, like this, this cilantro versus parsley example could be one of them and the different ways in which you can tell or, um, detecting a melanoma versus other kinds of, uh, other kinds of, um, growths on, on, on skin. So, you know, there's all these different nuances and we track all those, all these different nuances, um, within our internal systems. And we are constantly trying to understand for each of the annotators, what is, which, which nuances, um, or which edge cases are they performing well at, and they understand super well, and which ones might be tripping them up, and then proactively serving them um, materials and content and and examples that help them elucidate these these cases that they might not understand super well. And so it's it's this it's almost I really think about it as an ed tech system which enables um, you know the the enables people to really like quickly grok and understand all the nuances of the data. Um, and, and humans are incredible pattern recognition, right? You know, if you think about what it takes to go through medical school, um, and you talk to folks who have gone through medical school, it's an incredibly long process of just sort of like continued pattern recognition. Um, and that's sort of that same process where we try to distill for the annotators in our, in our, in our system to enable them to do, um, great work. Uh, that, that's incredible. So first and foremost, it's interesting that you've actually, it sounds like you've built AI to then help your annotators get better faster, which is recursive, right? You're actually using your own product on yourself to make your, yourself better over time. And a similar vein, um, I think for a lot of students, um, AI can help make AI better, right? So oftentimes, you know, we talk about, you, know, you sort of talk about it. Um, we want the humans to pay attention to the thing that actually matters on an image or, you know, in a sentence. and um, AI actually can be used to segment or pull out the part that requires attention. And so, uh, again, um, it, there's all these recursive loops in here that I find totally fascinating with, with your work. Um, let's maybe broaden out a little bit. Uh, you know, you, we have just kind of touched upon the melanoma example and, and something that I find fascinating with sort of a lot of sort of AI systems that are looking at um, skin, for example, are focused on what's available already, right? So um, algorithms currently, um, as I understand it, are much more accurate for fair-skinned individuals because there's just more in, in data. Um, so, you know, when you think about like helping your um, customers that you call your partners sort of build sort of fair, balanced sort of AI systems, 
how do you have that conversation with them? I, I know it matters less with roads and maybe like license plates where it's pretty unambiguous when you when you look at numbers, right? But like, how, how do you have that conversation with a partner who, when they're solving a problem uh, to, to, and to aim for being responsible? Yeah, definitely. Well, I think first off, to your point, um, I think responsible AI um, is, you know, is incredibly for to have responsible AI, it's incredibly important to build high quality and representative data. You know, I, I actually think it's it's critical um, because at its core, this thing that I talked about earlier is that, you know, the, the, the data is almost like the food that you feed to these machine learning systems and ultimately you are what you eat. And so the, the sort of um, the uh, data is, is sort of the, one of the fundamental um, areas where, where these biases or these, these kinds of really critical real world issues can sort of stem from. And, uh, and really what, the way we think about it is like, how do, we, how do we build technology? How do we build tools? How do we build, um, how do we build things to enable uh, either our customers or ourselves to ensure minimal bias um, and minimal harmful results with with these machine with the data sets that power these machine learning systems, and or how do we build systems that are going to flag that or identify when those biases may exist um, as as proactively as possible, so that then we know that we have to go fix that problem um, long before it ends up in the hands of a consumer or a or some sort of critical decision making progress. So, for example. Um, uh, we, we recently worked with like a bunch of medical researchers on, uh, on automated, uh, medical imaging analysis, you know, this, this sort of exact problem. We worked with the MIT media lab and analyzed, um, this, this exact problem that you mentioned of tons and tons of clinical images and found there were a lot more light skin images than dark skin images. And, uh, what we did is we actually, um, basically helped them replenish or sort of, um, de-bias the data set and, uh, and 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 add more data to the unrepresentative classes, either with real world data or um, using data augmentation or or um, synthetic data, and we're able to significantly de-bias um, the output or the outcomes from the machine learning algorithm. And so, I think you know it's it's not an easy problem in any way. You know, this is actually a, a sort of like you know a um, this is a one of the quote unquote hard problems of AI in the sense that there's no easy solution. It's not like you know, um, I don't expect that next year we're going to get some, you know, crazy machine learning architecture that all of a sudden solves the problem of uh, data bias or machine learning bias. It really is all about the nitty gritty details about what does your data set look like? How do you know ahead of time when there's bias in the data set? And then how do you fix that? Or how do you proactively resolve that? And how do you keep going through that process? You know, in some ways, that was a trick question, because in order to unbiased, you have to be aware of the bias. And so uh, that is not always easy. So I know on the back end, you know, you can unbias once you're aware of the bias. Um, you know, do you, do you work with your partners to gather more data in the case where you, you, your sort of initial preliminary analysis is that there may be bias? Do you go back to them and say, hey, you might want to collect more um, in order for it to reshape this? Yeah, we, we do. And in fact, a lot of times, and going back to this, like, a lot of times our customers, they actually are sitting on incredibly large troves of data, but they don't have any of the, the tooling or, or infrastructure to help them sort of sift through the noise and identify the quote unquote needles in the haystack or identify the, the particular pieces of data that are going to drive forward their model performance or drive forward bias 
um, the most effectively. And so we built tooling, our Nucleus product, which actually enables this exact process of like, hey, I know there's a problem with, let's say, um, not enough of a particular kind of, uh, of, of skin growth in my data set. And then how can I then go through all my unlabeled data set, all my entire large troves of data to just get more samples of this kind of skincare, skin growth so that my algorithms are, are performing significantly better in the future. And that's really the, the sort of like uh, much more so than even, you know, getting the data. It's about, it's about uh, put, sort of uh, instilling this sort of philosophy around continual improvement of algorithms through continual improvement of data. Um, and I think that that, if we can get there, then I think we're going to be able to to cope with all these all these challenges with bias and and data issues and and, and all that stuff, model issues much more effectively. Oh, that's very cool. Very cool. Um, so maybe I could to zoom forward. We were started from when you were nineteen when you came up with Scale AI. Um, if we were to sort of look out to twenty thirty two. I know you've worked in many different industries, healthcare, transportation, real estate, and more. Um, what are you excited about? Like, where do you think we're going to be in 2032? And, you know, with that, the secondary question is then, you know, given that we have a lot of budding entrepreneurs in our class uh, and, and beyond who might be watching on YouTube Live right now, um, you know, whether it's going deeper into picks and shovels, you know, as you've done with Scale AI or other places within the ML Gold Rush that are like really, really interesting, like, looking out to 2032, where do you think we're going to end up and what are the opportunities? Yeah, no, I think it's, I, I mean, I truly think, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of in the, the golden age of AI, so to speak, where the, the sort of proliferation of, of use cases is going to be, um, is going to be absolutely massive. Like even at, even at scale, you know, we started in autonomous vehicles and the first few years of the company, you know, it actually, it felt like machine learning felt kind of, um, I don't know if the word is lonely, but it was like autonomous vehicles were the the big use case. Everything else almost felt like you know a a sort of side project or um, or something much smaller. And then fast forward to now, we see all sorts of like really exciting use cases um, in in every single industry. So with uh, with financial services customers like uh, Brex or PayPal or or Square or whatnot, we see interesting use cases around trying to understand. Um, build systems that move money more effectively or uh, identify um, uh, or understand transaction flows a lot better or identify fraud much better. Or we see use cases with, you know, Flexport, which is uh, sort of a global trade uh, platform and and enable just like an incredible amount of efficiency in the process of global trade, which is very important. You know, it's really important that like, you know, we're able to get uh, goods delivered from everywhere in the world. And uh, it's an incredibly manual process today. And by using machine learning, you can automate a huge number of those workflows and enable the, the, the overall economy to just get a lot more efficient. Or whether it's with, you know, um, a, uh, whether it's with a large scale autonomous or uh, automotive company and a car company and building not only full stack autonomous vehicles, but also driver assistance systems or systems that make drivers more safe, et cetera. So I think that like we're in this phase where there's this massive proliferation of uh, of of machine learning systems, and I think that like the the way one way I would think about it is, um, you know, the 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 sort of like software eats the world mindset is that you take like think about any industry and any um, or any sort of like 
any problem in the world today and just imagine, okay, if you had software, how could you, how could you transform that? And I think that we've just seen, this has been this like very long-term sort of slow transformation because it turns out humans are sort of like infinitely creative and you'll take any system and we'll be able to identify, oh, you can use software in this way, or oh, you can use software in this way. And then you even sometimes even replace existing software with new software. Like, you know, there's like law, like old enterprise systems that are replaced by like new style, um, more consumery kind of uh, kind of internet platforms. And so, um, and so I think it's going to be this continual process where we're going to look at something, we're going to look at a problem, let's say, like, um, in insurance, the process by which claims get processed, we're gonna look at a problem. And we're going to think, Okay, if you act like if you use machine learning the right way, and not just AI in some magical sense, but actual like you know the the core fundamentals of machine learning, then you can design this process to be ten x more efficient. And we're just going to keep identifying all those problems. And and I think you you go fast forward to twenty thirty two, it's going to be everywhere. It's going to and uh, and the opportunity won't have stopped. Like we're still going to have like plenty of opportunity to 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 apply AI to these systems. I think maybe more. To, to name a few specific examples, because I think these are maybe um, some of the ones that are quote unquote cooler or more exciting right now. I think that there's um, there's a few that I think are really important. And for those of you um, with uh, who are sort of like thinking about what ideas are exciting, I think these are um, these are maybe some some areas to to think about. Um, I think first one is science. Uh, science is um, you know there, there's actually these papers about how scientific progress had has kind of been slowing actually a little bit over the past few decades. Um, and, and one part of that is that like, you know, if you think about science, let's say a century ago or two centuries ago, um, you could do so many experiments um, and, and your ability to validate your ideas um, was, was, was really, really exciting. And now we're at a point where like um, a lot of the cheap experiments, so to speak, have been explored. And now we have like ridiculously expensive experiments, you know, like, Particle accelerators are extremely, extremely expensive, or um, large-scale clinical trials are very, very expensive, et cetera. And and one of the really exciting use cases of AI is using AI to simulate, um, uh, effectively, basically simulate experiments um, significantly more effectively than you could in the past, and um, or they could using classical methods. And there's already a lot of examples of this in whether that's something like an AlphaFold out of DeepMind or uh, using AI applied to sort of like fusion experiments or fusion simulations. Um, but I think there's going to be a huge boon in physics, chemistry, biology, pharmaceuticals. Um, and it's going to transform a lot of the sort of like, it's going to be this base technology that empowers a lot of, a lot of future innovation. So I think, I think that one's really critical. Um, metaverse is, is a use case is something that a lot of people are talking about these days. I think it means a lot of different things to different people. But I think if you, if you think about AR um, or or augmented reality, um, which is is probably one of the the form factors that might that probably feels most intuitive to a lot of us, which is that hey, we're just going to have sort of this this digital overlay over just our, our our natural lives. If you think about that problem, it is an incredibly complex machine learning problem, an incredibly complex um, AI problem, because fundamentally you need to understand the world and how these different objects relate to one another and how um, I as a person can relate to those objects. And and if people are walking past each other and they make a look, you need to be able to understand that kind of stuff. And so you need to have this very fine-grained understanding of, of what is going on in the world around you. And 
And that's a very, very challenging AI problem. But I think that it's one that, you know, um, is, is going to enable these sort of like very sci-fi like consumer experiences that I think of the future that I think we're all really um, fundamentally really excited about. Um, and, and the last one that I'll kind of mention, just because, you know, I think, I think this one is really important and it's, it's somewhat controversial, but I think it's, it's an important one to talk about is I think um, AI is applied to um, the government's problems, in particular applied to sort of national security, defense, intelligence, et cetera. And I think that we're in a very interesting period um, in the world where the, 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 the sort of like uh, warfare is shifting from, from sort of a previous paradigm to a significantly more digital paradigm. And now, you know, a significant number of, of these sort of like skirmishes of the future are going to happen entire di entirely digitally in cyberspace or via AI systems or via purely digital um, systems. And I think it's really, really important that um, if, you know, if you believe in kind of democracy and you believe in the values that, that the, the United States represents, that the, that the United States and other democratic countries are able to um, utilize best-in-class technologies to not be vulnerable as a sort of long-term platform shift is occurring. And so I think, it's, I think it is really important that we have some of the best and most brilliant technical minds thinking about how do we build the best-in-class systems for the future of the United States to enable um, the United States to be uh, as effective from a from a defense and sort of um, intelligence perspective as it has been for the past, you know, call it 50 years, which has really enabled the sort of like modern era of peace. So um, I think those are some some of the areas that, that excite me the most slash I think are most important. Oh, incredible. So just to sum it up, science, metaverse, AR, VR, and then government. Uh, you know, it's it's fascinating to me. You know, if I were to tackle that question, I'm, um, I'm always like, what are the chores that human beings don't like doing? Like washing dishes or like, you know, dealing dealing my taxes, right? Like one day, all the things that, you know, are taking up our time and could be automated. I see 2030 as a point in time where all those things are automated and we are free to actually do what only uniquely humans can do, which is to spend our time being creators and being creative. And I hope that that's the future that I look for. And I think, you know, I, I would support the, the comments that you made here. Um, let's talk about robots for a second. Uh, at one point, you know, uh, <laughs> in the early days of uh, some of the everyday robots work uh, at, at um, Google, uh, I would have a robot come to my desk and try very hard to clean up my desk and it would fail. Uh, generally, it would try to pick up my bowl of cereal and accidentally pour milk all over my desk or like once in a while, it would like steal my bottle of wine, you know, like all stuff like that. Um, put it aside, um, I'm actually a little bit curious about, you know, with AI and data and, and you know, sort of tied up the conversation that we had around AR, um, you know, in the future, there's going to be, you know, artificial you know, humans, right? And, uh, you know, I, I heard an interesting podcast recently with Ezra Klein interviewing Ted Liang, who's a science fiction writer. And, you know, he said that, you know, before machines become sentient, um, we will probably end up causing them to suffer a whole lot. And, uh, you know, this kind of begs the question, you know, AI, how do we, how do we give feelings to machines? And is our machines going to have feelings? And is, are we, is that a bridge too far? And, you know, I know we're sort of sphering away from sort of data, but the whole entire purpose of the work that you're doing is to really create this foundation for data to then 
bring AI, you know, into the future to make human life better. Uh, curious how you how you feel about robots and and machines and and that space. Yeah, no, I think um, it's a super interesting philosophical question, which is that like you know, let's take a let's take a you know, um, right now in a in a Stanford AI class, most of the students will train some sort of um, simple neural network to uh, recognize objects and imagery. Um, is that neural network uh, a is that like does that neural network have feelings like when you um, will will delete it from uh, your your hard drive because you're running out of space? Is that uh, is that is that is that an, does it does that cause suffering to that neural network? And I think that um, I think there's a super uh, you know these are it's like very tough questions to answer. Like where where are the boundaries? What are the for each of these edge cases? You know what what does that kind of look like? I I actually think that you know. I think the sci-fi fantasy um, states in the future where you have AI systems that actually fully resemble humans in terms of their ability to have judgment and and you know um, and and uh, and communicate with us. I think it's actually quite far. And and you know my maybe my evidence point is like we're still not at a point where an AI system can fully accurately process documents um, and OCR like still like does not work fully effectively. Um, and the judgment that goes the judgment that will be required from an AI systems actually like resembles people is so far off that I think that um, I think we're going to be in this sort of like limbo state, so to speak, where, where we have AI systems that are very effective and very useful um, and, and can do things that like maybe we didn't think they could do like three years ago, but you're not going to get to the point where you have things, AI systems that are, um, that are, uh, that you would, you would sort of like, you know, where there's like these, really deep philosophical questions that are that are tough one thing that i do think though is um uh is going to happen probably sooner rather than later um and and this is maybe the sort of like near-term problem is that uh, uh we're going up more and more have ai systems that affect how humans think right and and this is sort of like it's already happened to some degree where um social media systems or ad systems or or even search you know, these are these are machine learning systems. They pick content for you, and that and the way they pick content for you will change how you think. And um, this is only going to keep going in in that direction. Like I think in the future, we're going like not so distant future. We're going to have um, uh, children are going to have sort of like AI um, friends, and they're going to have these chatbots that they can talk with and practice, uh, you know, speech with and sort of like and learn from and talk about their days and like basically like true friends. And they're going to affect how, how humans think, just like how, um, you know, phones have sort of like changed the human's attention span probably permanently. And so I think that those, there are sort of these like interesting social issues around what does it mean for AI to have such a, such a real tangible impact on, um, on how we might behave in time that I think are, um, I mean, those are like, that's a really important sociological question. And, and what what are the implications of that? How do we get ahead of it? And I think ultimately, at least from our neck of the woods and our view, I think a lot of that comes down to again, how do we ensure accuracy, quality, um, and 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 efficacy of the data that are feeding these ML systems, so we never end up in like a a really a really bad scenario where the data distribution or the data used to feed in one of these algorithms was so off base that it caused all these unintended consequences of the, the sort of um, the people that, that were using them. And in some sense, I think that like 
know, if you think about sort of like political polarization um, that's happening, on some level, that is a data distribution problem. It's like, hey, you know, what's happening is that these ML content systems are favoring more and more polarized content. Um, uh, and the data distribution has shifted so significantly. And that's causing all these like weird social um, social uh, dilemmas um, that that are that are that are really tough to think about and tough to deal with. And so, anyway, long story short, I think it does all come back to data. At least, like I think data is a uh, is a uh, necessary but not sufficient uh, part of the problem. And uh, and I and I think that you know that AI is going to change how we think pretty soon. And 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 um, you know we're going to have to think about that. <laughs> that was uh, fantastic. Thank you for being so just genuine in, in responding to a pretty provocative question that I was asking you. So I, I know that the students are hankering to ask you questions. So let's dive into that for the final remainder of this time. Uh, first question here, what are some key challenges you have had to overcome while running your company? Yeah. Back to life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's a, it's a, so it's a great question and it's almost, you know, um, answering it is almost impossible because it's almost like what, what challenges have I not had to overcome, um, in building a company? I think that one of the, one of the things about, you know, uh, I, I think it's probably like doing, doing anything challenging and sort of this, this concept of like, you know, whether it's building a new product or building a, building a company or, or building, um, a team, you know, there's just, uh, you know, it's like whatever, like you'll deal with so many challenging scenarios in time. And there's sort of like this infinite chaos to the world that will cause you to sort of be, be confronted with the most strange circumstances that you like could not foresee. And you're just going to have to figure them out. Um, but I, th I think that like, you know, if I had to, if I did distill it down, I think probably the, the parts about building scale that have, that have really maybe the most challenging, but also most rewarding have been about, um, building the team, getting great people to sort of like join the mission um, and and really and really see the potential of, of what we'd be what we're able to accomplish, whether that be, you know, uh, whether it be people who I work with and my or the incredible team at scale, whether that be our amazing investors, whether it be our amazing uh, customers. But I think this sort of like this fundamental challenge of of getting people to buy into um, what you believe the future to look like, I think is um, is one of the is one of the hard problems of the world, and I think I, I felt very lucky that you know so many people have chosen to to take a chance on me. So, well, you have an incredible vision and very a lot of clarity around that vision. So I can understand why a lot of people have uh, joined you in whatever way they can. Uh, I think that's also underestimated. I think a lot of our engineering students here are like, oh, you know, I'm going to spend a lot of time on the tech, but it turns out that spending time on the people is just as important, if not even more important. All right, next question. Uh, at what point during the development of your company did you realize that, number one, it could become a serious competitor in the AI space, and number two, that you were ready to pursue building it full-time? Uh, yeah, no, it's a, really, it's a really good question. I think, that, um, I think that early on, you know, sort of, it, it, always, it always is helpful to be wildly optimistic, I should say, um, or at least or at least dare, maybe, maybe the proper terminology is to dare to dream big, which is that um, even early on, I think this sort of like this thread of thought, which was, hey, you know, if we actually do solve 
this sort of like data problem for for the machine learning community. That is big. And I don't know exactly what it's going to look like to, to build from that point, but we're going to be able to do a lot of interesting stuff if we get there. And so that thread of, of idea did emerge and, and it didn't become, it honestly wasn't relevant for us for the first many years of the company because we're just focused on data labeling, data annotation. We're just focused on like solving that. But then you sort of, you know, we solved that problem. We were really focused on, we got scale. And then we picked our heads up and we're like, wow, we're actually at this sort of like the promised land that we thought at the very beginning that like we can, we actually have a shot at like building a lot more, doing a lot more and more industries to sort of accelerate AI and machine learning development. And so, you know, I would say that it was a, maybe early on it was a pipe dream. And then it was sort of like, you know, many years later before it actually felt like, hey, this is like a real, a real opportunity for us. Um, and the second part of the question, which was, um, at what point did I decide I was ready to pursue it, uh, building it full time? I actually like, um, I wish I could say, oh, I was just like so um, convicted. And so I just, uh, and so, and so I just like went for it. But actually it was, um, I really started working on it in earnest um, when school ended. I remember even like, um, I put I put working on all of it uh, on hold uh, what to get through like my finals and my final projects and all that stuff. And then the summer started and I was like, uh, all right, I have nothing else to do. And then, um, and then I, I was, we were very fortunate that we got over the course of the summer months enough momentum where it was like, hey, there's kind of no option but to just, you know, keep going at this thing. And so I think it's, I think it's sort of like this barrier, this mental barrier um, feels very large, oftentimes around like, hey, I have a life right now. At one point, am I going to be ready to like sacrifice my life today and then and then go do and then go approach this other life? I think the um, and I think a lot of times they'll still seem very irrational. And my, maybe my advice is to like um, not not actually be quote unquote trapped in that false dichotomy, but actually just put yourself in situations where you have sort of freedom and flexibility to explore and then and then like see how you gain momentum in that's in that scenario. I appreciate that because sometimes uh, students feel like they have to have something lined up for the summer, but it was actually a gift for you not to have had something lined up and to have that space to kind of really dive deeply into something that you really cared about. Uh, similarly, let's take the next question here. Knowing what you may know now after running your company for three years, if you could go back to the first day you started your company, would you do anything differently? Yeah, well, there's always a butterfly effect where like maybe if I did something slightly differently than like that, you know, all these other things would have gone gone totally differently. And so um, on the whole, I wouldn't trade. This sort of, I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't screw it up too much. Um, that being said, uh, um, I do actually think that that like, you know, the the biggest thing that that I would say, or, like if I were to go back and were to tell myself one thing, it would be that like, you know, it's the people matter so much. And like, you know, um, however much, you know, I was, I was really focused on the people early on. Um, and, and, and a lot of that was, was guided because of mentorship that I had gotten or advice that I had gotten. And also just this sort of like this, like selfish desire was like, Hey, I want to work with people who like really inspire me and really get me excited. And that's, that's, that seems like the best way to live, especially I'm going to be working on this all day and night. Um, uh, and so that was like, you know, I, I ended up, uh, you know, getting there a little bit, but I would just, it's like, now I I know in my mind state that it's like, however much I thought that people mattered at the start, they matter like 10, it's like, obviously they matter 10x more now. And I wish I could sort of like transport that thought 
back to my back to my prior self. Um, so that that's kind of tough. Um, I also think maybe the other piece is like along the way, there's there's a lot of moments of like great self doubt, um, and and that's just it's almost like part of the journey because almost invariably you're just gonna end up in a situation where it's like, wow, crap, I've like almost like no idea what to do, and um, and I think probably the big thing I would tell myself is like it is like totally okay to be in that spot. It is totally okay for that to happen to you. Um, it is not okay to be paralyzed when that happens. Uh, and, and even if you, you, you literally take the worst possible action coming out of that scenario, it will be better to have taken that action than to have taken no action. And so, um, it's maybe that's the other thing I would tell myself. Uh, ultimately, there are no, I would say, one-way doors, right? I think by taking an action, we can always course correct along the way. But if we don't take any action, we don't have any new information. And so it's super important to actually make a decision to act, even with uh, imperfect information. All right, next question. With recent scrutiny regarding data privacy, how do you think AI companies who are, of course, reliant on good data should go about data collection? Huh. Yeah, no, I, th I think this is a super... Um it's a super important question because I think that the question is like, um, and, and this is spurred in, you know, there's been a bunch of examples in the past that have spurred this, but some of them, for example, are like, you know, the realization that Siri or Alexa are, um, are learning from, from, uh, recordings that, you know, and you had no idea that they were necessarily learning from those, those, uh, recordings. And so, um, and so I think it's like a super important, almost like reorientation um, that the that the entire technology or ML community needs to take, which is like going from um, going from having this thought is like, however, I can get the data, I will use that data and then train machine learning systems on it to uh, I need to get this data in a very responsible way. I need to do it in a way that is that is like um, where everybody who's providing the data understands that their data is being provided for these AI systems where I'm collecting it in a de-biased way where I'm collecting sufficient amounts of it, et cetera. And I think that, you know, the answer is that that's going to make, that's going to make it harder to build the same kinds of AI systems potentially, but it's going, it's, it's the way that technology needs to develop. Like it's not, it's not a tenable um, state for, for machine learning systems to be developed um, sort of uh, by, by taking advantage of maybe like, you know, um, a, a checkbox that nobody reads or, or, you know, stuff like that. And so, um, so I think it's a, it's a very important shift. It's a big shift. It's going to happen. Um, and we're, we're helping a lot of our customers think through that and, and, and make them robust to ensuring that they actually get data for these ML systems that is, that is sort of responsibly collected. You know, it, it actually goes back to something you, you said many times, even publicly, like your customers, you partner with them, right? You're not just providing them with a solution. You're really truly partnering with them and being in dialogue with them because these these challenges like privacy are very nuanced and tricky and, and you can't it can't be the same thing every time right and so you have to sort of lean in and have the conversation as a partner as opposed to selling a thing that's finished and so um i'm, I'm really glad that that question was asked because it is something that's top of mind for so many people let's tackle one more question one more question uh try to fit it in there um, what have been your most significant failures? Oh goodness. And what did you learn from them? Or like, let's start with just one big failure that you felt was a failure and how did you learn from them? Yeah. You know, I think, um, man, there's so many, but, but I think, <laughs> um, I'll, I'll talk about one that, that is, is very much top of mind. Um, we had this one, one of our first customers and, and really our first 
uh, very large customer. Um, and I, I won't name them, but they're, they're sort of like a, a, they're a prominent company. And, and um, they really, in the very early days of scale, they took a huge chance um, by working with us. Cause like, you know, obviously our product was really janky. Um, it only kind of worked. They took a huge bet on us to that we would be able to solve this problem for them. And, um, and uh, actually for a while, we had a pretty successful relationship with this customer and that's what allowed them to grow to be very large and what allowed them to, us to scale up with them and for us to sort of like, you know, um, to build this great relationship with them. And then one of the, I, I think it was like, I don't know if it was, a, I'd call it a failure or a mistake or whatnot, is that we, we ended up losing focus on that customer. And, and it was sort of like, okay, let's go find other big customers. Let's go do all this other stuff. And, um, and in doing that, or in that process, we ended up, um, we ended up really like, like, uh, you know, in the ignorance in ignoring that customer, um, they, they, at a certain point, we just, we, we weren't actually solving their problem and we weren't actually sort of like, um, being the, being the, the scrappy team that they could bet on, that they could actually like bet on to, to build an incredible product for them. And, and they ended up leaving. And I remember this was like this incredibly, it was, it was very challenging in the moment. This is one of the examples of like, you know, when I talked about, hey, you're going to have moments of great self-doubt. And I remember asking myself like, um, hey, is this, do we even have a business? Like, does it even make sense for customers to work with us? Like all, asking myself all these questions. And um, and it was, it was a really tough moment because it was also one of these things where it was like, you know, there was almost nothing that we could have done to convince them to have continued working with us. So it was like, this was these one of these situations, like what's done is done. And, um, and the big takeaway or the big thing that we learned from it is like, it's just so, so important to be customer centric. And it's so important to, to always be focused on your customers and make sure that you're, you're always understanding what, what you need to do and how you make them, um, just ecstatic about your product and how you, how you sort of like exceed all their expectations. And, that moment really like however embedded this concept was in our culture beforehand, it just like, it just made it even more visceral and made it more obvious. And so, um, I, I think that was an incredible learning moment. I'm, I, the only thing is like, I'm very grateful that it came so early on in our journey. The entrepreneurial thought leader series is a Stanford eCorner original production. The stories and lessons on Stanford eCorner are designed to help you find the courage and clarity to see and seize opportunities. Stanford eCorner is led by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Stanford's Department of Management Science and Engineering. To learn more, please visit us at eCorner.stanford.edu.